I knew and I told the kids at that moment, I said, look, there, there is no script for this. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, we're going to learn as we go. Um, but I made it really, really clear to those three girls that we were going to do everything we could to get through this. We were going to do it together and that our house was a safe space they could come and go and it was judgment free and they wouldn't be judged and they couldn't judge me because I knew and I told them I am going to make mistakes. Welcome to Unrevealed Purpose. I'm your host, Daniel Fadley, and with me today is Craig Johnson. Hey, Craig, thanks for being here. Um, Craig and I have um, a little bit of history together because we both uh, are inflicted with the same addiction, and that is to support our children in showing livestock. Um, it, it we we say we do it because, uh, or at least I say I do it because it's good for the kids, and and it actually is. Um, but you know, once you kind of get into it, you kind of you're a little bit addicted yourself, and and um, it's great to have kids that want to do the, those things. Um, so I, I got introduced to Craig here a few years ago because his kids show livestock at the same county fair that my kids do, and um, our kids ended up in the ring together from from time to time, and and Craig's youngest child, Bridget, and my youngest child, Ryan, they're several years apart in age, but they have a weird, almost sibling kind of connection um, that got formed in the the pig show ring. So um, that's how I got to know Craig and a little bit about Craig's story here with his wife, Katie. Um, So Craig, why don't you just introduce, um, you introduced yourself already, but introduce where where you're from um, and, and a little bit about your family and then how you came to be a, a caregiver for your wife, Katie. Yeah, sounds good. Um, first of all, it's strange to visit with you and not be in a swine barn. I think that's the most challenging part of doing it this. Is. <laughs> but we'll, we'll manage. We should have done it, it at the state fair, I guess. <laughs> we should have. It's really quiet compared to when we normally talk. So, yeah, that's I'll right. give you just a little back, bit of background on Katie and myself. Um, we live in Bondurant. Um, little town outside of Des Moines, and we live on uh, a home that her great grandfather built on a heritage farm, which has been in her family for 150 years. So, um, we've been wow. here for about 25 years now, and have been married for just celebrated our 31st anniversary. So, we've spent the majority of our marriage on this farm, living amongst the history. You know, it's never changed hands. It's always been in the same family. I think my kids are seventh generation growing up on this farm. So it's pretty, pretty special to have that in the background. Um, as you're navigating each day kind of keeps things in perspective. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit. That's remarkable. I I didn't realize that, that, that you had both been on uh, or that that the farm had been in the family for so long. That is that is really remarkable. Yeah, it's a pretty neat situation. And it's funny, you know, neither one of us were farm kids. So there was a generation in there, be her mom's generation, that none of the kids raised their kids on this farm. So Katie and I both grew up in town, didn't live on a farm, didn't have livestock, didn't do 4-H, didn't do FFA. And so we never had those never thought it would go that way. But as it 
progressed and our kids found that passion for livestock and showing livestock. And we just kept having to say yes and figure it out as we went along and learn just right along with the kids. So yeah, it became addictive to us too, because we wanted to spend that time with our kids and that was the best way to do it. Absolutely best way to do it. You bet. So you and Katie, that 31 years, congratulations, by the way, Thank you. that's a, that's a, an accomplishment in and of itself. Um, and three beautiful, um, daughters who are now, um, adult ish, we'll call it. Yeah. Um, yeah. College aged or, or higher. Right. Yeah. So, so their names we, are. Yeah. So back up a little more, you know, we kind of had kids late in life too, uh, at our age and our kids' age, we're always kind of the oldest parents in the room when we're with their friends. But, um, we do have three daughters. Uh, our first daughter, Lydia is a senior at Iowa state. And our middle daughter, Grace is a sophomore at the university of Northern Iowa. And our youngest Bridget is a freshman at Iowa state. So three great kids and, uh, a, a daughter, dad, I guess they call me. Yeah. And I have to confess something to you, Craig. I'm not sure if I ever told you this or not, but I knew Lydia just by observing at, at, mm. at the fair and, and saw how she carried herself. Um, and then had a couple conversations with her from time to time and, and was impressed with just the maturity, um, that she demonstrated, but, but seemed like a quiet kind of more passive kind of personality. And then yeah. I got to know Bridget. Yeah. And, uh, those are two different sides of the coin. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and grace in the middle lies somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Two very different okay. kids. Well, I, and, I, I, I don't know her. I, I'm not sure I've ever talked to her. <laughs> yeah. But they're, they're great kids and, and they all become an, a very important part of, um, you know, the story that I'm about to tell and, you know, not only my being a caregiver, but, uh, each of them functioning as a caregiver, uh, of me and their mom and each other. So it's been, uh, they were, uh, you know, they were all at an interesting age when all this unfolded, they weren't little kids, they were transitioning to be adults and it affected them. And the choices they made were fun to, I shouldn't say fun's not the right word, but interesting to watch how they took what was presented to them and dealt with it. Lost you there for a minute, Craig. You're back now and you're clearer than ever. So why don't, why don't we proceed and we'll, uh, we will, uh, see what, what needs to be edited out of this or, um, just let everybody hear how, how amateur this whole thing is. <laughs> so you were talking, you were talking about the girls and, and, uh, um, personalities and just them, them transitioning into adulthood and, and everything here. And, and, um, they were doing that and going through their latter teenage years when, um, your lives changed, um, with the diagnosis with, with Katie. So talk about, um, talk about that. Tell us what, uh, what Katie had and, um, and, uh, the whole, this whole story, uh, behind, um, you becoming a caregiver for her. Okay. So, you know, kind of, what we just discussed, the girls were at this, you know, really great age and they were really 
chasing down some serious passions. Um, at the time, Bridget was a junior in high school, was Grace's senior year of high school, and Lydia's uh, would have been sophomore year, junior year, a sophomore year of college. So um, it's basically around the middle of February of 2022. Everything was fine. Life was just as it should be. And Katie came down one morning and I typically get up before her and I'm in the kitchen having coffee, doing what I do. And she came down and she said, man, I've got a really sore throat. You should see this. She opened her mouth up and I could look in and I could see white like nodules swollen in the back of her throat. And I said, holy smokes, you've got strep throat really bad. So called our doctor and we've got a great doctor that's a primary care doctor. So we didn't, we got to skip urgent care. We got to go right to her, which was always nice. So Katie went to the doctor and she came home with antibiotics and she said, you know, it was weird. Everything that she could test for there at the doctor's office was negative, but you know, clearly I've got an infection of some kind. So she said just to go home and rest and, and, uh, take the antibiotics and, you know how your doctor always says, call me back if you don't feel better in seven days or so. Yeah. That, that, that's what we got. And that was fine. And so that week passed. And so fast forward to February 24th, she said, today's Thursday. Honestly, I don't feel any better. I've been on these for a week. I'm calling the doctor back. And I said, sounds like a good idea. So I called her back and she wanted to see her right away since she really wasn't changing at all. And this was just right after COVID, right? So yeah, we were February of 2022. So I was allowed to go with her to that doctor appointment, which was nice because that was a point when they were only letting one person in the room at a time. So I went in with her and, uh, I guess, standard operating procedure, they do a blood panel at that point because you've been sick for a week. So let's figure out what infection you have. Sure. So they came back and they said, okay. She said, I ran the blood and your white count is so high that it won't measure on the equipment that we have at the office. Well, at the time we didn't really know what that meant. We just knew it wasn't good. Right. So I said, is that unusual? And she said, yeah, I can't think in my career I've ever had that happen. So there's something going on. You either have a very, very bad infection or you might have cancer. I mean, that, that was the whole kind of how quick this unfolded. So, so, so said, both, both not good things, right? but one con- considerably way worse than the yeah, other one way worse than the other one but it could have still just been an infection so she said here's what i think i want you to do go home and they're going to run more tests on the blood samples that i took at the hospital because they can test things that we can't at the clinic and then i will be back in touch with you and i'm going to try to fast track that and talk to you before the weekend because this was thursday night you know late afternoon So we went home and just as the door, I'm opening the door to the house, the phone rings and it's our doctor. And she says, change of plans. 
I want you guys to go right to the emergency room because they're going to want more blood to test. So you might as well get down there and get them what they need. So that was kind of shocking, I guess. And that was honestly maybe the only time I have seen Katie really cry. I think she knew something was wrong because of the way she felt. Yeah. So she even had the common sense to pack a bag at that point. She almost like she had this intuition and I was like, no, let's just go. No, no, I'm going to put a bag together and you, we can keep it in the car, but if I need it, it's there. So she got a bag together and we drove to the emergency room. I remember neither one of us said a word the entire drive, which is not like us. Um, we have always been together and kindred spirits together, you know, and got down there and got to the ER and got in and took blood and, you know, just kind of went through the motions. And, you know, I'd say by, oh, probably eight o'clock that night. So it's only been a few hours since we were at the doctor. Uh, we had an oncologist sit down with us and told her that she had cancer. And in that same sentence said, you will be admitted to the hospital. You won't leave any sooner than 30 days from now. And you'll be starting chemotherapy tonight. Okay. So you're going to have to unpack that for me because a lot of people get, unfortunately get diagnosed mm -hmm. with cancer. Yeah. So this had to be different. Yeah. And um, more complicated yeah, so, and uh, more, more potentially catastrophic. Yeah. So what, what her cancer is, which we knew it was a leukemia right out of the gate, which is a blood cancer. There's several types of blood cancers and they were still running tests to figure out exactly which leukemia it was. So I don't remember, it didn't take very long and we were told it was acute myeloid leukemia. And that news came in that same night. Um, we've kind of come to understand there's lots of different cancers. Um, it's not a contest. They're all bad. Um, but they all have their unique challenges. They have their unique advantages at times and their disadvantages. But when they explained what hers was, I heard leukemia. I knew what that was. And I heard acute and I knew that was bad. And so, you know, then it just became kind of a learning process. And, and the first thing that we learned is with, now I'll back up. If you don't know what acute myeloid leukemia is, um, it's basically the simplest way to put it is your bone marrow, which produces your blood, produces three main components. It produces white cells that fight infection. It produces hemoglobin that moves oxygen and it pr creates platelets, which cause clotting. That's its basic function is the bone marrow. So in acute myeloid leukemia, the bone marrow, for unknown reasons, not genetic, not uh, environmental, um, just bad luck, uh, begins to produce white cells that are defective, that don't have a um, your white cells have an end game. They have a job they go out and do, 
they die off and they are processed out of your system. When a person has acute myeloid leukemia, they continue to produce those white cells that don't have a don't have an end date, an expiration date to them. So they just build up in your system. And that's what's causing then the infection and some of the other things. So um, we kind of took all that in. And, and, and what was hard with all of that is, you know, Katie immediately was concerned with how that's going to affect the kids. Of course. Um, you know, she had stayed home with Lydia from about the time she was two until that point. She still hadn't gone back to work. She was a mom and a mom's all she ever wanted to be. And she was great at it. And so all of a sudden she realized the world was going to have to be about her for a while. And she didn't want that to affect the kids. So we, talked about that a lot and how we were going to tell them. Um, so at this point, Lydia had checked our location and said, what's going on? Cause she could see Katie and I at the hospital and she's at Iowa state. And I'm sure the girls had talked to cause Grace knew that where we were going to the hospital and Bridget at some point had got home from school. So Lydia says, what's going on? So, all I told the girls was that we were at the hospital. There was tests they couldn't run at the doctor's office. They had to run them here, and I would update them when I could. Um, but incidentally, we were right in the middle of lambing also. So I've got 25 pregnant sheep at home that are actively having lambs <laughs> at unforeseen times. And it's the middle of winter, so it's cold out, so they need a shepherd. So Lydia came home. Uh, she, I said, why don't you just come home in the morning, but I'll need your help with the lambs. And so she immediately drove home. So we knew we had all the girls at the house. And, uh, so really the next thing that happened, I think it was just after midnight. So it was really on like the 25th. Um, they brought in a pill and they said, this is your chemo and this is how this starts and take this. And that's going to stop your bone marrow. Um, from producing, which gives us a day or two to get organized here. And that's how kind of acute this disease can be. Um, you know, Kate, one of the first questions she asked when the doctor told her was she said, and I think this is probably a natural thing for anybody that gets cancer, but I don't know. Um, she said, what did I do wrong? And you don't do anything wrong. These things just happen. So that was a kind of a hard pill to swallow. Um, that you just kind of got the short end of the straw, but we kind of just sat there that night and tried to guess at how our life was going to change, but they really were guesses. Um, we've kind of said all along, it seems like doctors through her journey shared what needed shared at the time that it needed shared. Had they laid the whole script down in front of me, I would have been so overwhelmed that I couldn't process it. But we always kind of got what we needed when we needed it as we went along. They just kind of, 
And I don't even know that that's by design, but they just kind of spoon feed you what you need to know so that you can get your head around it and keep moving forward. So, so basically I turned around in the morning, uh, Katie, I think got admitted to a room that next day and I went home and, and sat down and talked to the girls about what, what we knew at that point and what we thought was going to happen. Um, and really all we knew is we were going to do uh, chemotherapy and we were going to be in the hospital for at least 30 days. And that's all we knew. So um, it's interesting that you, you uh, first of all, um, I can, I can, both imagine and see on your face how emotional it is to to retell the story and i can i can empathize with that <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can empathize with that because every time i i retell the story about robin getting hurt yeah um it's it's all the the repressed emotion that uh that we've we've kind of tucked away until it the, yeah. the scab gets picked um I think it's interesting and I I'm, I'm impressed with your, the way you described doctors telling you what you needed to know when you needed to know, I'm paraphrasing, but that's Mm -hmm. the gist of it because you say that with a, and a, uh, a compassion, so to speak for them. You say it with, with kind of gratitude for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's, um, Anybody who's listened to the first four episodes of this know that I'm not afraid to bash on a doctor here or there. Um, but, I, but I think, uh, if I reflect on our own story, I could, I could say the exact same thing that you said, and I could mm-hmm. say it with, with, uh, more positivity I and gratitude mm-hmm. than I have, um, because they're in a tough spot too. They can't predict the future. Yeah. Yeah. I, Early on in this, a really close friend who'd lost his dad to cancer um, shared with me a story where uh, he's very strong-willed, very opinionated. This is the son, my friend. And it got to the point where his dad asked him and the doctor to come to his bedside that he couldn't get out of and to shake hands over him and apologized to each other. And they did that. And his dad said, remember, it's practice. Medicine is a practice. And if it was an exact science, we'd call it something else, but we wouldn't call it a practice. And so it's never going to be perfect. It might never be exactly what you want it to be. And that story was so powerful because I was able to carry that reminding myself these guys, as long as I felt like people were doing the best job they could do that day for my wife and my family, I was perfectly happy and it wasn't going to be perfect. Yeah. It's uh, it's a little bit of, as long as you're showing us, you, you give a shit. Mm Mm-hmm we can hang with you for a while. Yep. We will, oh, yeah. we will tolerate yeah. that the system is flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't tell us exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. But if you show us, you care, yeah. uh, we're, we're right there with you. Yeah. I, I don't envy them. I really don't. And especially in situations like yours with Katie is if, if you're one of the doctors, you're delivering almost nothing but bad news. Yeah. Yep. 
I, I can't imagine the emotional toll it takes on them to have no. to deliver that kind of news. Yeah. I think it's significant when, you know, I had a unique perspective too during that time period, you know, so she ended up being in the hospital for a little over 70 days. Um, the, the goal was remission, which is no evidence of disease. Those terms are kind of used synonymously in leukemia. Um, we don't really throw the word cured around. We throw around remission and no evidence of disease. And early in the days, we also found out that she had a um, genetic mutation called FLT3, which makes her case even more complicated because with that particular genetic mutation, a stem cell transplant is the only hope for a cure. So we knew pretty early on that we had a long road ahead of us. Not only did we get need to get to remission, but we also had a stem cell transplant in the future. Um, so first round of chemotherapy um, did okay. Didn't get rid of the disease. Um, kind of was met with a lot of things that could go wrong, went wrong, which we were warned would happen. Um, you know, doctors said, we have no way of telling you if this is going to trend up or trend down, it will be a crooked path. That's the only thing we can guarantee. And so it's just day to day, you know, providing chemo and then managing symptoms on the backside of that. Craig, if you don't mind me interrupting just for, for a minute here, um, before you, you talk more about, um, the treatments and the, in, in the process that you went through. Um, I'm going to ask you a question and, and I got to tell you if I, if somebody asked me, it would be very hard for me to answer. Um, okay. Because I'm, I want to, I want to understand what that, um, that conversation with the girls was like mm. when, when it was time to tell them what was going on. Well, I've got great kids, which you do have great kids. I can, I can validate that made it easier, even though it was difficult. Um, we, we all sat down at the table in the kitchen. Was Katie with you at this point or no, she was admitted. She was admitted. admitted, Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that was the hard part is there was no, we talked about, you know, some people with certain illnesses get opportunities to get their affairs in order and get, do this and do that and go out for a night, take a trip before you start X, Y, Z procedures. We didn't have any of that. It all went from, I have a sore throat to I have cancer in a two week timetable. And prior to that, she was perfectly healthy. So the girls I knew were pro- weren't processing that or were processing it very differently for each one of them. So really, you know, I came home that morning after, so it would have been on the 25th and we just sat down at the table and I was pretty factual about what was going on and what we were going to do because there's one protocol for getting diagnosed with that disease. So you do, there's one chemotherapy, everybody in the country gets it. And we kind of knew what that looked like 
and what the side effects might be and what the end goal was. And we talked about that with the girls. And then we really just talked about how we were going to manage through that. You know, what were we going to do together to get that accomplished? It kind of became a 4-H project. To I don't want to make light of it, but it was, okay, we've done this before. Um, we've had challenges and nothing like this, obviously, but no one of us is going to get through this alone. It's going to take all of us. And we all talked about what roles we could assume, what support we needed. Um, and I think most importantly, in that moment, I set the tone and, it, and none of that conversation was planned. That was the other thing is as a planner and a dad, you want to keep control of some situations <laughs> with your kids. And I, I knew, and I told the kids at that moment, I said, look, there, there is no script for this. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, we're going to learn as we go. Um, but I made it really, really clear to those three girls that we were going to do everything we could to get through this. We were going to do it together and that our house was a safe space that they could come and go and it was judgment free and they wouldn't be judged and they couldn't judge me because I knew and I told them I am going to make mistakes in not only the way I'm handling mom, but the way I'm parenting them. I, I knew this was going to change our relationship. Um, and I needed them to know that was okay. Um, and I think that they heard that loud and clear because we never talked about it again. And it, that's the way this house is now and always will be. Well, um, you, you talked about Katie just always wanting to be a mom and being an amazing one. Um, pretty good dad. Thanks. To be able to, to digest in 24 hours or considerably less and, and process it to the point and, and to be vulnerable enough with your children. Yeah. Um, who, I'm certain look at you as a source of strength and, and to admit never done this before. Didn't sign up for it. We're going to do it anyway. And, and, uh, I think the, uh, the judgment free zone mm. in situations like this, because everybody's dealing with something that they, they never anticipated. Yeah. Um, great, great example and model, uh, for how to handle it. And, it, but it's a pretty tough script to write it and is. try to follow. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm sitting here at my desk and I have a piece of paper. I'm going to grab it sitting pinned up. So I read it every day. There it is. So my okay, daughter, it's a little blurry, Craig, yeah, you're going to have to read it to I'll me. I'll read it to you. So after that night, uh, the next time I was home, which probably was days later, to be honest, this note was on my desk and it was from my daughter, Grace. And it said, I love you. I don't know if I can read it, Dan. I read it every day, but I can't read it out loud. How's that? 
Yeah. It says, thanks for being strong for us. You've shown us that there's strength in vulnerability. Wise child you have there. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for going there with me. Like, like I said, I, I mean, I, I, I think about, um, the drive I had trying to figure out how yeah. am I going to tell our children? It's such a, here. it's such a big piece of it. It's as big a piece of it as the patient that's on the other side of it. You know, it's that, that family unit, it's so important that it be managed and coddled and have what it needs so that it can continue to be successful. Yeah. So, yep. Well, um, not a ball that you wish you were ever going to get the chance to hit, but you knocked it out of the park. So, Thanks. so well done on that. So, so let's go back to first round of chemo. Did yeah. okay. Not great. That's the impression I've gotten so far to, so keep, keep going. Yeah. Did okay. Uh, not great. Had some setbacks, you know, you go through a period during that where you're, you're basically shutting your bone marrow off so that it's not producing those blood components and you're letting it reboot. That's a, that's the best way to understand it. And as it reboots, it makes hemoglobin first, platelet second, and white blood cells third. And they come back online when they feel like coming back online. And during that period, of, if when as they're not coming back, you can supplement whole blood. So you can have hemoglobin blood transfusions. You can have platelet transfusions, but you can't have white cell transfusions. So they can support hemoglobin and platelets, but you can't support... Uh, the recovery of your immune system. So during that period, you lay really susceptible to infections um, and all the things that go with that. So imagine the, uh, imagine like the first month of COVID. That's what our life looked like right now. We could not get sick. You know, we couldn't do anything wrong. I was going down there every day, so I couldn't walk in there sick. Um, the girls couldn't get sick and get me sick. So they're wearing masks to school. They're doing everything they can to support mom at the hospital who they never get to see. And that was a, there was a little sacrifice they could make, but it was a big one to the greater scheme of things. Um, eventually, we got to kind of the, you know, roughly 30 days out from the beginning of that first round of chemo and counts recovered. Um, and then we checked for the cancer and we were still, you know, we'd gone from like 80% cancer cells to 20% cancer cells. So we had made progress, but we weren't there yet. We, we, you really can't stop at that point unless you choose to. Yeah. Um, and that was never in the cards for Katie. So, you know, we have these, kept having these moments. Um, we didn't know what to call them. And another person that was a friend who was a cancer survivor, I was telling her a story one day and she said, oh, oh, those are God winks. And I'm like, what? She goes, you know. 
you just can't even make it up. You can't even explain it. That that's a god wink. It's just you a needed wink. a wink. Yep, you needed yep. it. He gave it, and just say thank you and move on. So one of the first. So what, ones, what's an example? Are you? Yeah, okay, I'm gonna go ahead. Give, so give an the, example. One of the first one of those we had is you know they had told us as they were spoon feeding us they were like you know you need to. We know you're going to need a stem cell transplant, Katie. So you need to start thinking about where that might take place. And your options are uh, Mayo, uh, Iowa City would be another option. And then uh, I can't remember if it was Kansas City or Omaha. But they basically gave us three locations. And so during that first round of chemo, we knew that we were going to have to make that decision. And so we were doing research on each of the facilities and doctors and trying to figure out what to do and looking at, Hey, where do we have support? Cause we knew enough that that was going to be a long hospitalization again. And, and we, we settled on Iowa city. Um, we had a ton of support in Iowa city, um, friends over there and just that, that seemed right. And when we looked at the doctor, there was one doctor that was in charge of the stem cell transplant program for her type of cancer. And we just felt, I don't know, some connection. We read her bio and looked at her picture and we were like, I I think that's our girl. I think, I think, I think that's what we'll do. So at some point after this first round of chemo and things didn't, we didn't get to remission, we had a doctor and at the time and it rotated. So we always had a different doctor. I won't bore you with the details of the rotation. But you have an oncology clinic, and those doctors are all rotating through. So you never saw the same person while you were there. It was constantly somebody different. Each one of them had a different bedside manner. Each one of them saw her case through a little bit different lens. Um, each one of them brought good things, bad things, indifferent things. Like It, it, it became kind of interesting getting to know each of them. So the guy that's on call during this period where we're like, crud, what do we do next? Well, I mentioned that everybody gets the same chemo out of the gate with AML. That's on the first. If it doesn't work, then it's the Wild West. Then there's lots of options to pick from and things to do. And and everybody's got an opinion. And that became difficult. So we, uh, this guy kind of came in and he said, let me ask you a question. Who, where, have you guys talked about your stem cell transplant and where you might go for that? And I said, yeah, we like hashed it out. Iowa city. And he's like, okay, um, I'll be right back. And he leaves and he came back and he explained to us that himself and two other doctors at this particular oncology business had worked as fellows underneath this woman that runs the program in Iowa city. And at that point they were going to just call her, tell her what they had on their hands and ask her what she wanted to get you ready for a stem cell transplant. Just like that. Just like that. God wink. Like it was like, and so it gave us, and the doctors, their path, because she said, look, I've looked at her case. I know everything that's going on. This is what you need to do. 
And so that gave us our next pat, next piece of the puzzle to move forward down. So the next round of chemotherapy was a lot worse uh, than the first one. It was a lot rougher. Um, quite a few more side effects, quite a few more setbacks. Um, you know, and at this point we're, I don't know, 30 days into this, there's a little fatigue happening, um, with me. Um, so at this point I probably should back up to Lydia chose to work with all of her professors at Iowa state and move her camp home knowing that I needed her help with her sisters. Um, you know, I mentioned Katie was a great mom. She, we ran a great house because Katie took care of everything, which freed me up to work and to do all the things that I love to do with the kids. So it was livestock. It was coaching soccer. It was, you know, that's how this house and our kids flourished is, we kind of divided up the workload and um, we didn't cross paths on the workload so that we could accomplish the most. And when she got sick, I had to assume the workload for both her and me. Um, and that was, that was a little overwhelming. I know I didn't pay bills. I didn't do laundry. I didn't do a lot of the domestic things that needed done. Um, so yeah, it's one of those early days, like, I don't know, it might've been the first or second day we were in the hospital. I, I explained this to her and I said, I, I'm going to have to take over right and paying bills and stuff. And I said, be honest, Katie, before this starts, do you have any secrets? Like if something happens, am I going to find something out? Like, do we have, are there secrets? Like, I don't have any, but we should make sure we're square on this topic, I guess, before, you know, who knows? <laughs> I can imagine how awkward that conversation yeah. starts. <laughs> it was really funny. Yeah. Awkward, but kind of necessary. Right. And because yeah. we just haven't had time to plan. We just got catapulted into this. And she goes, uh, yeah, I, I have a secret. And I'm like, oh, I didn't think she'd have one. And, <laughs> I said, what is it? And she goes, yeah, um, Grace and I were shopping and I opened a Shields credit card to get a discount on the stuff that we bought. <laughs> <laughs> oh, knowing, no. Knowing that one of my only requirements was don't open a lot of extra credit cards. So um, that was our only secret we had when we were <laughs> in the middle of all this. Um, but anyway, I don't know what triggered that memory, but. Um, so Lydia, Lydia moves her, yeah. she basically says, I can, I can knock out some school and, and yep. be home and help dad out. Yep. Help so my she sisters. Moves home. Thanks for pulling me back on track there. She, she moved home, uh, you know, right away and professors were great and she moved everything home and, and really was helping take care of the house, take care, taking care of me. I mean, I was trying to be a caregiver to Katie full-time, um, kind of unstoppable. And the only way to do that was to have some support at home. And so I was always greeted with a meal. I had food going out the door with me. I don't, I don't know how she 
grew up about 15 years in about five days. Uh, yeah. It was fascinating to watch. Um, and then when we get into kind of the, kind of towards the end of that first round of chemo, I had Katie or I had Lydia uh, coming in and helping at the hospital. And then Katie's sister, Beth, was also coming in and helping at the house and helping at the hospital. Um, I realized I, I was only going to be as good a caregiver as I felt. And when I started falling apart, it wasn't helping anybody in any part of it. So I always had a lot of people coming in to bail me out. So, um, so that was great. But it's important to point out, I guess, as a caregiver, there was no way I could have carried that burden alone, um, through all those days in the hospital and, and at home. And it, it took a lot of people caring for me and caring for Katie. Yeah, for sure. So, so you're, um, so Lydia was eventually able to, to see Katie in the hospital. Yeah. Yep. So at that time it was just, you could have one person a day. They didn't really care who all came. So, yeah. Uh, we would just send one person a day down there. Um, so we would kind of take turns. We found, we found our limits of how many days you could spend at the hospital before you needed to get out of there. And, and it was, you know, the days were pretty active. There was just a lot of, you weren't just idly sitting by and watching. You were, you were spending a lot of time advocating while you were there. Um, you were, I spent a lot of time watching Katie try to advocate for herself. And then I needed to be her voice when she couldn't articulate really either what was happening or, uh, how she felt. Um, yeah, there was, there was strange things like she was really not responsive to platelet infusions. So she went weeks without platelets, which is a major problem because platelets are what stop bleeding. Sure. So you begin to run a very, very high risk of stroke when you don't have platelets. Um, and there was long periods where she didn't have any. And, you know, there was a, there was a night when we were sitting and we were watching TV and she said, why does Nora O'Donnell's voice sound different? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. She goes, her voice doesn't sound the same. I wonder if it's the TV here at the hospital. And I said, I don't know. A little bit later, she said, you know, your voice is funny too. And mm -hmm. I said, no, I don't think so. So I, you know, buzzed the nurse. The nurse comes on and I explained what was going on. And so they, doctors came in and whisked her off to a CT scan. And sure enough, she had a little brain bleed. So she was having a neurological symptom. that was a small brain bleed near the, uh, auditory part of your brain. And it manifested itself in, you know, beginning to not recognize some speech. So it was interesting, you know, had I not been there, no one would have noticed that Katie right. wouldn't have known to say anything. So you know, the, the pressure to be there never goes away. I always wanted to be there. And if I wasn't, I wanted Lydia or Katie's sister, Beth, to be there. It was important that one of us be there all the time. Yeah, it's a, uh, um, it's a, call it a burden, 
yeah. that caregivers bear. Um, I, I can relate to it, that, that need to be there, that desire to be there, that you don't want to miss anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like a track meter, a swim meter, whatever though, you know, you're, you, you sit there a really long time and then this event happens and it's, it's, it happens pretty fast. And then you sit there a really long <laughs> time again yeah. and, and you're like, good God, can we, you know, can we just get this over with? <laughs> yeah. But, but, but I, um, I mean, I'm, I'm still that way with Robin. I, yeah. I don't, every i want to be at every doctor's appointment i yep. want to like yep. you just want to be there because you because you you've talked about it a lot just mm-hmm. in the way you're describing um the leukemia the 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 role of bone marrow the stem cell transplant you, your understanding of all this is a product mm-hmm. of being present and um advocating requires that you be knowledgeable enough Yep. to be able to have a conversation that wasn't part of your school curriculum. Mm-mm. Never had, you know, you, so I I'm, I'm astounded with just your command of every step in the process and your knowledge and, and it's admirable. And I, but I think it's, um, ca- caregivers like you that were thrust into this without warning, mm-hmm. you don't get time to study up. Nope. So, so being present is about the only way that you get to learn what you need to learn because Google can be helpful. It can also scare the living daylights out of you. Yeah. So it's, it's almost not worth going there a lot of times. Yeah. We, I don't think I've used Google some, obviously I don't think Katie's used it at all. She's really relied on her doctors, which I think is smart as a patient. Um, Use the expert that's taking care of you to tell you what you need to know. And I think that's been really beneficial from her point of view. Um, yeah. So, 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 um, I'm trying to remember cause she was, you, you said 70 days in the hospital, right? Yeah. Yeah. So skip- but, but was there a subsequent visit then? Cause she had to go to Iowa city then after that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll okay. kind of fast, kind of fast forward. We get to the end of the, we get to the end of that second round of chemo and you get to go home when you're in remission and your white count recovers. So her white count recovers. Um, God bless us. She's in remission. The cancer's no evidence of disease. So that second round of chemo wiped it out and it also wiped her out completely. Yeah. So she's, she was maybe a hundred and shouldn't say how much your wife weighs, but she was maybe 130 pounds when she got sick and she came out of the hospital at 97 pounds. Wow. So there wasn't much left of her. Uh, at that point she couldn't walk under her own power. Um, she couldn't stand under her own power. Um, but she got to go home, which was great. So we, you know, lined up a wheelchair hoping that would just be a temporary kind of get her strength back. Um, any resource that was offered to us, I just decided to say yes, because I didn't know what I needed, you know? So it's like, Hey, we can have a nurse come in the house twice a week. Okay, great. We can have physical therapy come. Okay, great. You know, anything that they were offering, I was willing to take because we had this window where she needed to get strong enough to handle the stem cell transplant before the cancer came back. 
Otherwise, we were just going to keep doing chemotherapy till we could time all that correctly. So when I say we, me, Katie, and the three girls decided this was our window of opportunity. We had the cancer in remission. We had an appointment set up to go visit with the stem cell transplant doctor in Iowa City who knew the case already. And so we weren't going to mess this up. We were going to laser focused, man. We were going to treat, we we're going to do everything we could. And so we got Katie home and physical therapy was incredible. You know, all of those resources that were available that we said yes to, you know, thank goodness I said yes, because they all were such necessary pieces that, you know, those people are very familiar to you in the world that you're living in now, but I didn't, sure. I didn't even understand what an occupational therapist did. Like, she yeah. did, you know, it just, I didn't really understand the role. Well, came to find out they would look at me and say, what does Katie need to do that she can't do, or you can't help her do? And then we would rehearse it and we'd try it with the, you know, and it was getting in and out of the shower and dealing with steps. And I mean, we just kind of started from scratch and and use those resources to figure that out. The uh, So we, we went over and we met with Iowa City and the response was exactly which we thought we would get, which is, hey, you need to do this. We can do this. We're going to start looking for a donor. Um, but you need to get yourself put back together. You are weak. You are worn out. You're exactly the way you should be after what you've been through. But you've got to do your part. So, um, she came home and man, we fed her calories like a wrestler gaining weight. It was pretty funny. She didn't matter what she ate. She'd be like, this tastes funny. And Lydia was dumping protein powder and everything that she ate. And it was, it was kind of a, it was an interesting period cause we were scared, but we had a job to do and we had to stay focused on the job that we do. And we, just kind of kept trudging along, knowing we had a date in the future that was a follow-up in Iowa City where they were going to make a decision. And at that point, you know, they're going to make a decision on, is she ready for it? And do we have a donor? And so um, that's kind of what we were up against during that period. And, you know, that was a fun period. We, looking back on it, we were so glad to be back together at home. And being a caregiver in your own home is a lot easier because you don't have to commute. So we were always right there together and could kind of move along and do what we needed to do. Um, and as the story progresses, she gets to a stem cell transplant. So we, we did accomplish our mission. We got her where we needed her to be. Um, yeah. So, and that was good. Um, but the stem cell transplant became a whole nother, that was a whole nother thing to learn that didn't have anything to do, do with what, where we've already been. It was quite a bit of different information. And that was, uh, again, my, my memory and my starting knowledge isn't great. My memory is worse, but, um, she was there for several months if I remember correctly. Well, uh, no, it was pretty short, really. It was crazy. So as it turns out, her brother was a full match to her stem cells. Okay. Which isn't a guarantee with a sibling. So that was a huge blessing. 
because he lives locally. So it was easy to, it was easy to, easy to get him to donate those stem cells, uh, just in terms of travel and timing. And, you know, that stuff was just simple to do. Um, so we went over stem cell transplant took place on July 8th of 2022. So that kind of helps with the time frame. Okay. And so she was in the hospital in Iowa City for approximately a month. Um, it was around the twenty seventh or twenty eighth. Now I'm now I'm remembering this because Robin was there getting her baclofen pump put in. <laughs> yeah. I asked you if you wanted to go have lunch together, and you guys had just left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And county fair was happening all in the middle of all that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. So we had just left at the end of end of July. So that's, let's call it 14 months ago now, something like that. Okay. What's happened since? So what's happened since, um, you know, the stem cell transplant went really as expected, almost as for all the things that went wrong during the first two induction chemotherapies, the stem cell transplant was just the opposite. It just went great. Um, so there's some chemo you do on the front side of that um, to prepare the bone marrow, and then you infuse the stem cells, um, and then they just start going to the they go find their way through blood into the bone marrow. They start repopulating, start that factory. In essence, if you remember it with the with the chemotherapy on the front side, you're restarting the factory. With a stem cell transplant, you're replacing the factory. Yeah. So the chemo goes in, wipes out the bone marrow and destroys it. The new stem cells repopulate it. Now you've got a new factory making blood that hopefully is cancer free. And that's kind of the, the hope that you have um, going forward. But that process has been good. Uh, it was lots and lots of trips back and forth to Iowa City every couple of weeks, even after, the, uh, after she was uh, released from the hospital. And um, yeah, everything's good. You're, you're try not to get sick in those first hundred days, which is a really kind of isolated period for a lot of people, a real challenge for a lot of people. And, you know, I asked the question of kind of the admitting nurse when we were over there, I said, you know, you go through all this question and answer stuff and you don't know what questions to ask really, cause it's all foreign. And I said, what, question am I not asking or, or what do you wish people would ask that they don't? And you just shake your head. And she goes, she goes, you know, I think most people are so hung up on the stem cell transplant itself, the hospitalization that they don't realize the period after is much more difficult because you're going to be isolated. You're going to have to change habits you're going to not do things that you want to do. And uh, man, I'm glad I asked that question because that set the stage for really the period. We're, we're just on the backside. We're starting to get, Katie's got freedoms now that she hasn't had since she was diagnosed. You know, um, yesterday was her birthday and she invited friends over for dinner and somebody else wanted to bake a pie and yeah, just bring it over and stay and have a piece of pie. Those are things we haven't done since February of 2022. 
So wow. it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, and, it, and, and we had a couple of years just immediately preceding that, that, yeah. that prevented a lot of that stuff from happening <laughs> yeah. too. So we've, we've been pretty isolated. It's a good thing. We love each other so much because we just continue to make the most out of the time that we've got together. I mean, that's, we don't really, there's never a point when we've like driven each other crazy or not wanted to be in the same room. We just keep trudging along doing what we've got to do. Wow. So she, she is, um, no, no, what, what was the the expression? No evidence. Yeah. No evidence of disease. Yep. Okay. So she's had no evidence of disease for over a year now. Yeah. And her, Um, and then the other thing you measure is her immune system. So how is her immune system recovering? And her immune system, I would say is recovered on data that we've got, like it's 85% of what you and mine is. So it's, it's actually really good. Um, and it's kind of that of a, kind of like a newborn baby, you know, when your baby first gets sick, it gets really sick, runs really high fever. Um, that's kind of how her immune system is. Everything's new to it. Um, so she has to go through and get all of her immunizations, childhood immunizations again. Um, so we're, we're kind of doing that process right now. I, I never would have thought about that, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so she, you, you kind of got her nurse back to health enough to do the stem cell trans transplant, but she was probably still not exactly running, running uh, marathons or anything at that point. And then since, since stem cell transplant and, and staying healthy that first hundred days, um, I mean, she, she looked healthy (laughs) this summer. I mean, yeah, she looks good. Yeah. It's, we just keep, uh, you know, it's just, it's no different than recovering from an illness or being an athlete, you know, good food, good drinks in exercise, you know, we just keep moving along, but it's funny during that process, you you go to Iowa city every two or three weeks and they ask you the same questions. And one of the questions is how would you, how would you rate your energy level? And I remember (laughs) you know, her first visit over there after the stem cell transplant, she's like, I think it's good. I think I'm about back to normal. And I'm going, no, I don't think you are, but if that's what you think, that's good. And, you know, I would always let her advocate for herself. And every time we go over, she kind of gave the same response. Yep. I think I'm back to the way that I was, but I kept getting her stronger. She kept being stronger and stronger and stronger each time we made that visit. And, uh, so it's just kind of a constant reminder of the need for continued care because your perception of where you're at isn't necessarily where you're at, uh, compared to those that are looking at it from the outside. So, yeah. Yeah, but yep. yeah, she's in she's in great shape right now. I mean, we're you know, walking every day and riding bikes again. I mean, it's things are kind of back to normal. I'd say that's incredible. So, Craig, tell me about how this has. I, maybe it's not changed you, but what do you oh, know has. about yourself now that you didn't know before? Uh it's an interesting way to put it. Um, it's, you just don't, 
you think you know what you're capable of, not just physically, but mentally. And I don't know that we've even scratched the surface until you're presented with a situation like this, because there's so much more learning that you're capable of. There's so much, you know, you think you love someone, you have no idea until you get in a position like this. Um, I was reading some of the Caring Bridge stuff that I had written before we got on today, just because it's been so long. And I'd completely forgotten it, but when I read it, I remembered it like yesterday. And Lydia had written a post and said that I came in the door and I said, I love your mom more today than I ever have. And I completely remember the moment. I remember saying it. Um, but just that deeper love, deeper compassion, deeper learning. Um, I think those are the things that came out of it. Um, I think we tend to think about things in a physical, in the moment, it's all physical. You know, I can't, I'm out, of, I'm out of sleep. I'm out of energy. You know, you're, you're at the end of the marathon and you're exhausted and you got four more miles to run. I think that's the easy way to think about caregiving, but there's so much deep meaning that comes from it that it's completely reshaped me. Yeah, I call it, and, and, and I say that like I coined the phrase, I'm pretty sure I didn't, I probably <laughs> read it. Uh, but I, but, uh, I say it like it's mine. I, I call it the trials and the triumphs. Yeah. Um, and, um, I mentioned, uh, on one of the other episodes, my daughter, Mary, uh, she listened to, um, episode one, um, the other day and, and she didn't finish it yet mm. because she said it was so hard. Yeah. The story was so hard. And I said, sweetie, that's just but you didn't get to the triumphs. You only mm -hmm. listen to the trials. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you and I'm looking at you and I'm going, you've been, you've actually been smiling most of the time. I mean, you've been, you're, you're, you're telling the story of, of this hardship that your family endured, um, almost in a reminiscent kind of way. Yeah. And it's all pretty new. But yeah, it's... but you, but you went through a lot and your attitude about it is, is unbelievable. So well, thank you. Whatever you're doing, it's working. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, we have mostly really good days, but every once in a while it, it gets, it gets tough around here still. Yeah. And, and it's, it's knowing that the triumph is coming if you just choose to, to keep working at it. And, and yeah. that's, I think what caregivers and, and of course, in your case, it's Katie, in my case, it's Robin, they've conditioned themselves and we've conditioned ourselves to just, okay, it's going to be okay. We just got to yeah. keep moving. Yep. Yep. There's what there's, about, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. There's dark days. Like you said, there's, they're not all good days. We, we, we kind of coined the phrase in the very beginning, find the good in each day. Because what we realize is no matter how hard that day was shaping up in the hospital, there was bits and pieces of it laced throughout the day that were really cool and fun and incredible and something that we could laugh at and have fun with in spite of the negative. And I think there's still days like that. Um, 
I still have bad days where I just, I, I can't, I don't know what happens. Something just snaps, right? And you start thinking bad thoughts and you get in these, I call it a doom cycle where my brain just, all I can think of is what could go wrong. Cause we yeah. still have to, I have to live with that on the daily. Um, yeah. so does Katie, but she doesn't do it, which is good inspiration to me not to do it. But, um, when I get in those cycles and things get out of hand, which can happen, I, I read something recently and it, I don't know why it stuck, but I just say up and away. They're just thoughts up and away. And I'm just done with it because they're just thoughts. And that seems to kind of bring me present. Um, that's been the, you know, kind of the most challenge. And, and you can tell me if this is this way for you. The challenging part for me is what's the time frame that I'm thinking in? Because as I start thinking, you know, we've always been, Katie and I have always been planners. You know, where are we going to be in 25 years? Where are we going to be in 10 years? Through this, I've had to think in terms of, at times, in terms of 10 minutes at a time or an hour at a time, because I didn't know what was the next hour was going to look like. Most people don't have to do that in their life. And I, I find myself, when my mood changes and I'm not the guy that I want to be around, I'm thinking too far out and I need to pull it back in and scale it in a way that I can be happy again. And I don't know if that's, you find yourself doing that or if that's something I've discovered. I don't know, but it, it, well, it I, seems to work. Yeah. The way you just articulated that was brilliant. I, I think, um, I hadn't quite thought about it that way. I mean, we, a lot of times we'll, we'll just say, Hey, let's just, just take care of the next thing. Yeah. And then we'll get to the next thing and then we'll get to the next thing. And then you get a little bit of a respite at times where you can, you can start thinking a little longer term. Yeah. You know, yep. in our case, it's Robin thinking about, she wants to drive again. Yeah. You know, she hasn't driven in two and a half years. Um, body doesn't quite do everything it needs to do. Mm-hmm. Medication, the way it's been administered in the past, won't allow her to do it to drive now going through the process of changing that right now where administering pain medication through the baclofen pump so that she's not on oral opioids so that her head's clear. Uh, so, yep. you know, it, but it's there, it's the combination of not trying to, of knowing what the, the, the goals are mm-hmm. and knowing that there's no specific time horizon for those yep. Yep. while continuing to just doing the next thing that's on that path to getting there. Mm-hmm. And I think the, 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 the most dangerous things thing we can do to our, to our, to how we think about it is setting unrealistic expectations around the timeframes for certain things. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's nailed it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think your, uh, your dark days and having the perspective to pull yourself out of them, that that's that's, that's kind of life anyway, yep. you know, it it's is. not just yep. the caregiver life. It's not just the, the, the loved one's life. It's, it's, yep. but For I sure. think you've, you've been through, um, thing after thing after thing here in processing this. 
um, and it's giving you a unique perspective. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. How about, I'm, I'm really curious though, uh, around the girls and your relationship, um, with the girls and, and kind of the same question around that, how has this, um, changed your relationship with the girls, yours and Katie's and, and what's, and, and clearly you had, you were great parents before you had fantastic <laughs> girls, um, and each in their own unique, uh, and beautiful way. Um, but you've been through a lot together now and, and clearly you, the, the family's stuck together really well, but what, what's different about your relationship with the girls? Um, I, I think it's just better. You know, I, I wonder if it's the relationship that I have with my parents now at, in my fifties, I think my girls have that relationship with Katie and I in their late teens and early twenties. Yeah. It, it, it's caused them, you know, I don't, I don't think any kid should ever have to live a day thinking they might not see one of their parents again. Like most kids just don't, thank God they don't have to process that. Um, my girls did. Um, Lydia was able to be with Katie on a regular basis through all this. Um, during the stem cell transplant, we traded days, Lydia and I did. So she was with her 50% of the time. I was with her 50% of the time. Grace and Bridget have just had to kind of quietly observe, ask questions, and kind of go about their business. They've had a different challenges. Um, but they're, they've relied on me and now are relying on Katie again, uh, in really grown up mature ways. And again, there's, there's, you don't wish this on anybody, but the blessings that can come through, you know, working together for the greater good of someone in the tribe, um, is actually pretty wonderful. And I think all the kids have benefited in ways that I'll never understand. It's also hurt them in ways that I'll never understand. Um, but I think our relationship is great. You know, I, when everybody was at home during all those periods, you know, I continued to make a point to spend time with them as a group every day and then try to be individual with them every day too. Cause I knew that the group need or the group conversation could and should probably be totally different from an individual conversation. And I think I was secretly doing that for myself too, cause I wanted to deal with them individually and have yeah. my own, my own individual relationship with each of them uh, when I was going through all that too. Cause it was, was not easy. It's interesting you bring that up. Cause I've, I've had that same urge Mm. Uh, after Robin got hurt and after we, you know, she got home, we kind of got things settled. Mm -hmm. Mary and I just went to North Carolina a couple weeks ago, um, to, to visit some campuses down there. And, and that was that trip with her, just the two of us was completed the, the trifecta. 
a little over a year ago, I took Ryan to New Orleans to go to a Saints game together. We're yeah. Saints fans. Don't ask me why. But we are. <laughs> I remember you telling me that. <laughs> and then um, Alex turned 21 in March, took him to Nashville, and then Mary um, just a couple of weeks ago. And there's there's been something in the dealing with the emotions of everything from the beginning that this there's been this overwhelming urge. I love having everybody together. Don't get me yes. wrong. Oh yeah. But, but there's this overwhelming urge to create very specific one-on-one time with the kids, with that's each fascinating. kid. That, that's been a driver for me since February 24th. Like I, I, my brain recognized that without me realizing it. And I've been, kind of hung up on that through the whole process. Yeah. It's I'm, interesting I'm sure you've, a, you've experienced that too. Yeah. I'm sure a psychologist could get on here and tell us exactly <laughs> what's going on, but <laughs> I don't think a psychologist is wasting his or her time on my podcast. So, so this has been absolutely awesome, Craig. I'm going to, I'm going to share a couple stories um, just to, to wrap up here. If you don't mind, that's fine. One is, uh, you know, again, got to, got to share a little background here for the non livestock show people, but you know, your kid goes in the ring and with, with its animal, with his or her animal and, and, and it's a competition. They're, they're trying to exhibit it to their, the best of their ability. They're trying to make the animal look as good as it can look for the judge and, and all these things. And what happened when Robin fell um, and had her accident was it put me kind of out of commission for helping Ryan. And it was Ryan's first year of 4-H. Yeah. And, you know, he's got a, a an adequate enough support structure around to make it happen. And we had some people that just jumped in. I actually said, just bring the pigs to our house. We'll take care of them. He can come out whenever it works for him to, to work with them. I mean, it was a scramble. Yeah. It was a scramble to get it pulled together. Um, and, um, so it's his first real show at the county fair and we're, he, he makes it through to the final drive of the, the breeding guilt show. And it's, it's Ryan and Bridget head to yep. head in the yep. ring. And for those who don't know, like showing livestock, it, it is a great way to expose your kids to developing a work ethic and the, um, and fair competition. Although that's, some would say that's arguable, um, yeah. <laughs> all that kind of stuff. It is also just like little league or, or youth sports. People lose their damn minds over. Yep. It. That's true. Um, <laughs> and so the, the, the ingredients are all there pretty much for Craig and me not to like each other. Right. Because our kids are going head to head and some only one Fair can enough. walk out. We're, we're both at the top of our game and somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. And, um, it, I, I still don't, I mean, I, I still think of it like this is, this is like a Hallmark movie. Yeah. It kind played of out like a, it played out like a movie. And, and Ryan, my son goes in and he wins the show, which is not what we expected at all. <laughs> And, um, I turn around and you're looking at me and you, you come at me with tears in your eyes yeah, to give me a hug. Yep. 
and to tell me how happy you were for Ryan. God wink. Sorry. Sorry. God wink. That's exactly. a God wink right there. But <laughs> I didn't know you very well. And that's, that's when I, that's when your character revealed itself to me. Thank you. And it's, it's a memory that will stick with me. Um, I think about it every County fair. I'm thinking, <laughs> and every time I do this, I turn yeah. into a puddle. Yeah, um, I, I, I do too. It, uh, it, it's just fascinating how it played out and how important it was and how it's really why we do the things we do with our kids. And I think that all happened before Katie got sick. Yep. And it, that lesson that Bridget learned that day carried her through, I suppose, some dark days. But yeah. she understood why it happened, and it was it was really special. And to not see it as losing, but see the joy that not only that Ryan got from it, but you know all those families that stepped up. I mean that that livestock world, that agriculture world, is fascinating to me. How close knit and tight and caring and. Um, that was a, that was a great day. I mean, it made my decision years ago to throw all that money away on livestock worth it. Right. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> I tell the kids all the time, Hey, I love that you do it. I love that you love it. If you ever stop loving it, just tell me. Yeah. Cause I got all kinds of ways to spend money and time that don't involve this. Yeah. Ain't so. that the truth? <laughs> So the second story, um, was, uh, this just in August at the state fair and, and ran into Bridget and, um, I had, I had, uh, recorded one of these episodes, I think just the very first one. Mm. And I was like, okay, I'm doing this. And, and, and all of a sudden I thought about you as I'm talking to her as somebody that I, I should uh, ask to do this. And so I kind of really quickly just explained what I was doing and, um, said, you know, I, I, I'm thinking I might ask your dad if he wants to come on. And she said, oh my gosh, he would be awesome. You need to do that right now. He will be amazing. And so I think two, two points to come out of that one is, um, I think you've done okay with Bridget. She, <laughs> she God. is your biggest fan as near as I can tell. And, and there's uh, a lot to be, uh, to be said for, um, being her dad and her thinking that highly of you. So, so yeah, good thanks. on you for that. Yeah. And the second point is she was totally right. Yeah, oh, You were awesome. Um, and, uh, I, I tell everybody when I close this out, if I remember it, you're amazing, you're a superhero and I can't thank you enough for, for coming on here and sharing your story. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. You know, I, I was curious where it would go and I'm happy where it went. It's a great conversation, Dan. You do a great job. Thanks, Craig. Thanks so, so much for being here and uh, I really appreciate it and you take care. Yep. You too. Bye. Who inspires you with their care and advocacy for someone they love? Nominate them to tell their story on a future Unrevealed Purpose episode. 
by filling out the three-question nomination form at unrevealedpurpose.com.